0: This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 70. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at s-n-n-wire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me, and spread the MicroCat message. For this episode, I caught up with Tobias Carlisle, who is the founder of Carbon Beach Asset Management and The Acquirer's Multiple. Since our first interview on the Planet MicroCat podcast on episode 34, Tobias has written a book titled The Acquirer's Multiple, which I recently read and wanted to discuss its contents with him. As he says in the interview, his book, The Acquirer's Multiple, is an amalgamation of his first three books and it lays out in a clear, concise way, as the title states, and I quote, how the billionaire contrarians of deep value beat the market, end quote. The goal for this interview is to learn how some of the greatest investors beat the market, as well as understand even better what deep value investing is. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 70. And I would like to welcome back Tobias Carlisle, author of The Acquires Multiple. Tobias, welcome back to the Planet Microcap podcast
1: thanks for having me robert i'm excited to be back i'm so excited to have you back
0: and uh, again thank you for joining me so uh for those who may have missed our first interview that we did you know what is your background and your experience investing in microcap stocks
1: i started out as uh as a lawyer i worked in mergers and acquisitions in australia um basically i I graduated uh right at the very peak of the dot-com boom i think my first um my first month of work, at least, was like April 2000. And uh, anybody who follows the market closely knows that that was kind of the peak of the market, and then it crashed pretty uh, quickly after that. So I sort of thought I was going in to do dot-com type stuff, uh, you know, like dot-com IPOs, because that was just that was the hot thing at the time. But um, when the market crashed, the IPOs went away. The, the capital markets kind of closed up for the dot-coms, and it turned into a mergers and acquisitions type role, because there were lots of... Um, You know, private equity firms were sort of coming out of their shells and starting to buy a lot of these very cheap value stocks that were around. Um, There were these new investors sort of arriving on the scene, didn't really have a name for them, but they were um, what we now know as activists. And basically, they were chasing these busted little dot coms. And I had read uh, Warren Buffett's letters, um, you know, for free on the Internet while I was at college. And I kind of had a copy of uh, security analysis and I'd flick through it not really kind of getting it, like, but forcing myself to read as much of it as I could you know, about railway bonds and things like that. So I didn't see how it was particularly applicable. But I did know that Buffett um, liked uh, wonderful companies at fair prices, by which he meant like sort of high return and invested capital um, businesses. And I was watching these guys go after these dot-coms that really had no business model whatsoever. They were sort of selling... Um, you know, they, the joke is that they sell the $20 widget for $10, losing $10 on every transaction, but they make it up on volume. And it was kind of, you know, there's no real business just burning cash. And I was seeing these guys try to get control of these businesses and I couldn't really work out why they would want them. And I realized, of course, it's obvious that it's because they had raised a whole lot of cash and they were then trading at a discount to their cash. So these guys would get control, either liquidate the firm and pay out the cash themselves, or more commonly, they would just get control, sort of, you know, get themselves on the board, own 10 or 15% of the company, and then use the company to buy another similar kind of business in this daisy chain, or company in this daisy chain of, of stocks. So I went back to security analysis, read it properly this time, read the later chapters, which is like chapter 28, 29, where it talks about um, but it talks about liquidation value and liquidation value investing. And then the next chapter after that is the relationship of shareholders and management and why you might want to kick out bad managers and get control and stop the cash burn. And it kind of made sense um, to me as an investor. It had been the first uh, time that I really understood uh, what value investing could be. And I could sort of pair it with my legal background. So I started investing just for my own uh, personal account. Uh, in net-net type stocks, which if if your listeners don't know what those are, those are old Graham. Benjamin Graham wrote about this in sort of 1932. Net-net is something that trades for less than its liquidation value. That's a shorthand way of calculating the liquidation value, which is basically just looking at its um, net current assets, which is, you know, the cash, the inventory, um, receivables and backing out all liabilities from that and you're left over with a with a tiny little residue and if you can buy them for even less than that so they're very small stocks um you you can do very well they're they're not very many of them around and their screening has become so good that they're really easy to find it was they were hard to find when i sort of started out in the early 2000s so that was that was how i got started and i think that that's a good way for lots of investors to start because it teaches you that what you're really trying to do is to buy at a big discount to some value as a value investor. And that's what drives your returns, even though the stocks, you know, for them to get that cheap, they're, they're typically pretty nasty businesses.
0: For sure. So then you, from there, you made your transition to, uh, to running your own fund or, uh, you know, what took you then to, to the books that you ended up writing?
1: Well, I, it it was a longer transition (laughs) that I, I um, had wanted to get to the States because I sort of thought that that you know states are so much bigger, um, the business is sort of m- more kind of cutting edge um, than it than it is in Australia, and I, I thought if I can get to the states as a as a lawyer, so I can I can learn some interesting stuff. So I got transferred um, in 2004 or five, started working in San Francisco, um, doing tech M and A, which was you know super interesting and what kind of what i had been doing up to that point and san francisco was at the time was like really in the doldrums it was um it was before dot com 2.0 had taken off so the, the most interesting thing that had happened while i was there was google went public as a reverse ipo at you know something i can't remember i don't know what the split adjusted values but you know whatever it was it was like 80 bucks at the time and they were worried that they weren't going to be able to complete the ipo at that price like that's how That's how crushed everything was. So friends who I knew in San Francisco, the idea of being an entrepreneur in San Francisco was to build something using Google maps. Um, So you'd build like a burrito locator mission burrito locator, and then you'd sell that kind of business to Google and you would get hired to work on Google maps or something like that. So there wasn't, wasn't a great deal of um, it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't like people making lots of money all the time. And so I, um, had listed this company in Australia. They were going, well, they needed an in, internal, they needed a general counsel. So I went back to work for that company and um, they got they got bought out eventually and I made a little bit of money. So I was looking for something else to do. Went and worked in a, a, a hedge fund for a while, sort of using my legal skills to find these um, undervalued asset situations where we could be the catalyst to kind of unlock the value. And um, that uh, after about eighteen months, that that fund was wound up. So I launched my own thing at that stage um, in Australia, um, just trying to hunt for those anything that was like deeply undervalued, where an activist could come in or an activist had already come in and was trying to push for something to happen. It's a great little part of the market to be in because you've got these things that are genuinely undervalued. There's an activist trying to make something happen, even if the activist doesn't succeed. Often, just the fact that they brought attention to that undervalued asset situation means that the returns are very good out of it so that's sort of always been my thesis to look for deeply undervalued stocks um, where there's some sort of you know interesting balance sheet value maybe a little business there that's throwing off some cash as well and some potential for an activist or a private equity firm to come in and sort of force them to do something and uh, as part of that process in uh in 2009, when the, the market sort of bottomed, I, I started writing this website called Greenbacked in late 2008, just because I was finding these stocks in the States and I hadn't seen like really good deep value, really good net nets around for a long time. So I started writing the site and in um, the first quarter of 2009, I filled up a portfolio of like 30 of these positions. And through the end of the year, it did something like 250%. And I thought, I'm a genius at this (laughs) stuff. I'm really good at this stuff. But just because I'm, uh, you know, I just tortured myself by going back and looking at, I think I'd picked sort of 30 out of maybe 120 that I could have selected. Mm -hmm. And the 30 sort of had, you know, they were genuinely, they were throwing off a little bit of cash and they had an activist on board. So they looked like good opportunities. And I just went back and looked at what, you know, did I actually do anything positive by selecting those 30 and ignoring the other 90. If I just swept all of the 120 into my portfolio, I think the portfolio would have done something like 750%. And that's because you get these stocks in there that go up 20 or 50 times. Um, and so that was this, it started me down the path to being a little bit more systematic, a bit more of a quantitative investor. And I, I wrote on Greenback that I was going to write a book about quantitative value investing because i sort of wasn't really aware of anybody else doing it even though jim o'shaughnessy had already written the book that um what works on wall street that everybody should that's just the bible that everybody should have in their in their uh bookcase. so wes gray who's a uh, booth phd at the time contacted me and said i can do the back testing you write the book and that that book was uh, quantitative value which came out in 2012
0: Cool. So so and then but then because I remember last time we spot, we also spoke about um I think it was your second book after that. And then of course now today we're talking about your your latest one, uh, Acquires Multiple. Um so so from so this is back in twenty twelve. So from there did you transition to um just more solely running your own money or, or starting a more formal fund? You know, what so, led you where where what led you to where you're currently at today?
1: Um, when quantitative value came out, in the process of doing quantitative value, you know, we had this idea that we were going to go through and find all this industry and academic research, uh, you know, up some of which was 20, 30 years old, update it to the present day, see what worked, what had sort of stopped working or had never worked. And there are lots of um, little sort of statistical, probably anomalies that had been picked up that just stopped working. They were just sort of... Um, uh, you know, aberrations. If you look hard enough at the data, you're going to find things that aren't really there. And so we eliminated a lot of these things. But in the course of doing this testing, um, I I had read this James Montier uh, review of um, the little book that beats the market. And he wrote in there that he was getting better results ignoring return on invested capital. So if if you, um, if you don't know what the uh the magic formula is it's a joel greenblatt book little book that beats the market he writes about the magic formula which is a simplified version of Buffett's strategy where he's looking for high return on invested capital that's a wonderful company and cheap on an ebit operating earnings basis which is one of the things that buffett the two things that buffett sort of looks at buffett then goes on to do all of these other things on top of that but those that's the sort of the quantitative aspect of it and montier had said that in the little bit of data that he had tested it looked like just getting rid of the return on invested capital generated even better returns so we tested that found that that was in fact the case which I found fascinating because it doesn't really I thought you know what you're getting with that high return on invested capital is a wonderful company you know it's a diamond in the rough that can grow and compound and you're getting it cheaply but if you eliminate that requirement for the high return on invested capital you do even better again Mm -hmm. you get better returns And you get better risk adjusted returns, which it makes no sort of makes no sense. So I wanted to investigate that idea. And I I wrote deep value as sort of an investigation of what is it that drives better returns for just very cheap stocks and not necessarily cheap, but good stocks. And I found there's an enormous amount of research out there in lots of different um, value kind of areas that that phenomenon occurs over and over and over again, where any sort of quality metric that you put into these, um, test leads, un- leads you to want, leads you to underperform. So I wrote deep value. Um, I realized after writing deep value that, um, you know, stock selection is, is about half the battle. And the second half of the battle is portfolio construction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I wanted to investigate that. I wrote a book called concentrated investing with two other gentlemen. And, uh, that was looking at all the ways that you can build portfolios, concentrate, uh, diversify or use Kelly criterion to sort of concentrate even further, and, and why that would generate good returns, and what you should do it as you do that. And then, after writing all of those books, I had um, sort of they're, they're pretty expensive, like quasi academic type books. And people were, would often say to me, you know, the books are hard to read or they're too expensive. So, I, re- I wanted a book that was easy to read and uh, much much cheaper so that was uh the acquirer's multiple which is just sort of a distillation of all the best ideas and some new stuff i'd learned in the few years after the last book came out and that book came out uh, late last year nice so you know
0: i i feel remiss and i've and i i must apologize to my audience because you know i i i realized when i was doing our research for this interview i never even asked you about your process for evaluating potential new investment, and you go—you actually already alluded to it a little bit here when talking about net nets, and uh, you know, you even kind of look for special situations uh, in a sense. Very, it's very—that's a very simple take on it. But you know, what what would you say then is like your your main it, nowadays in in, in July 2018? You know, what what's your investing thesis now?
1: The the uh, the process is sort of it's quantum mental. Um, which is, it's, a great word. A, it's it, it is a great word. It's just, it's one of those things that people use it all the time. And it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit overused, but it, it is kind of a pretty accurate description of what, what I'm trying to do. So I, I am looking for deeply undervalued stocks that, so I have a screen, uh, I have a, a model that churns through all of the sort of, I, I think there are about 1200 stocks in my investable universe. And it looks at those 1,200 stocks and it ranks them all from one to sort of 1,200 on the basis of undervaluation and, um, you know, is the balance sheet healthy or is it in financial distress? Uh, is is there earnings manipulation going on or are the, are the accounting um, rules sort of being followed pretty closely over time? Um, and it looks at all of those sort of – it's looking for uh, – Cheap businesses that are throwing off lots of cash where management is sort of buying back stock, which is the sort of thing that it makes them um, and, you know, lots of free cash flow. So they tend to be targets for activists and private equity firms at the cheap end. And at the other end, they tend to be fairly junky companies that are losing money, burning free, you know, burning cash, issuing shares to sort of stay afloat. Um, The accounting looks really weird. So, I then create a portfolio that's basically. Um, well, sorry, there's a step I'm missing there. I I, I have a um, sort of uh, machine learning approach to it that looks at the basically it's looking at the accounting to make sure the 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 accounting um, picture that is presented to you matches the economic reality of what's occurring in the in the in the company, and that that's the final step, and that's what makes it quantum mental rather than purely quantitative. And so the, um, the portfolio then constructs, takes the best 30 and it goes long and it takes the worst 30 and it goes short in a long short portfolio where it's more heavily weighted towards the longs and uh, rolls it about once a quarter. And that's the and it's, it's sort of trying to get two things. There's a, there's a long portion that's just generating long returns like, like the market does. And then there's this long short portion that's sort of trying to get a little bit of a, the, the spread between those two groups as they come together. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So, you know, I listen, I know I could go, I think we could do a whole podcast just talking on on that question alone. But, you know, the main reason I wanted to have you on today was to discuss um, your most recent book uh, that, that you published in October. I think it was October 2017, um, The Acquirer's Multiple. So um, my first question is, you know, what what is it about and, and why did you write it?
1: It's a simplified version of the other books, and it's mostly – it's it's describing for people who aren't necessarily – investors aren't necessarily in the market. It describes for them um, how a deep value investor approaches investing, and it uses as, as examples of that lots of famous uh, deep value investors and some other guys who aren't deep value investors, including Buffett, who started out as a deep value investor when he was running the Buffett partnership. He's sort of – he's doing um, – pretty similar to what I was describing before, where he'd, he'd look for something that was undervalued then he wanted another investor to, you know, sort of be taking the lead to improve the business and he called it coattail riding. He'd, he'd find somebody's coattails and just sort of hang on for the ride and some, when he got big enough, he became the sort of prime mover and he'd, mm. you know, liquidate the company or, or just shut down the businesses that weren't going so well. Sometimes it was just liquidating the inventory, sometimes it was selling the company off piecemeal And uh, I think he was sort of burnt by that process a little bit. So that's one of the chapters that we we discuss. The idea is it's just a simple explanation of what deep value investing is and and how it works.
0: Mm -hmm. So actually, I think I did ask you this next question in the last interview, but I feel like it would be a good refresher. And I'm going to actually maybe add a little uh, new, well, I guess, I don't know if it's nuance. I'll let the audience decide that. But, um, <laughs> you know, for, so for those who may miss the first interview, you know, what, what, how would you define the difference between just value investing versus deep value investing? And is there even another level after deep value investing? Is there a, a deeper value investing?
1: <laughs> well, it's a good question. That's an interesting question. That's one of those, you know, I think Buffett has, Buffett, either coined the term value investing or he's the he's the main proponent of the term he's saying you just calculate the intrinsic value of a business and you look at uh, return on invested capital compare that to other uh, places that you could put your money t-bills or or whatever the case may be and then you can come up with a relative valuation between those two try and buy it at a discount to that he's looking for a particular type It might be called franchise value investing or Buffett type value investing, where you're looking for something that uh, has a high return on invested capital, that is sustainable and it's protected by a moat and it can compound and grow over time. And so you're trying to buy a cheaply or fairly priced business that will grow over time, throwing off cash as it does so. Deep value investor might be less concerned with the company's ability to compound And he's just looking for something that is very undervalued, Um, looking at the balance sheet, hoping that the the business can sort of survive. So often they're more cyclical businesses at the trough of a business cycle. And um, you buy them when they kind of look like they're just going to keep on going to zero. But instead, what tends to happen is enough um, in an industry, enough of the competitors leave the industry so that those that are left – when the, you know, if, if, if it's an oil field services company, when the, oil, when the oil price goes down to $30, it's hard for them to survive. Mm. When the oil price, and a lot of them will go out of business and a lot of them will just leave the industry because there there's money to be made in other places, Bitcoin mining or something like that. Then when the oil price comes back and uh, people want to drill again, there's only a handful of those companies around. And so those guys can charge super normal prices for a short period of time. And I'm trying to buy them basically at the at the trough when it looks like they're going to the knacker's yard, and then sell them when they're running a little bit better. And it looks like they might be Buffett-type compounders. So that's sort of my little wheelhouse, and I think that's what that's why I call it deep value investing, just to distinguish it from that sort of Buffett franchise-style investing.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean, would you say? Well, actually, just to to follow up on that question, you know, is there a deeper version? I mean, is there a combination of that or? Is that kind of like the golden goose where you can find that, you know, it might be a cyclical business now, it gets to that trough, but all of a sudden it becomes a real compounder over time where it, it you don't start to see those cycles. You see that there's actual momentum and this becomes the trend. You know, maybe it's like a, almost like social media back circa like, you know, uh, well, I don't know if that was ever really cyclical, but I think, do you see what I'm saying?
1: I think if you'd asked me that question like two years ago, I'd have said, no, cyclicals <laughs> tend to remain cyclical and you've got to be really careful when a cyclical is at the peak of its cycle because that's when it looks best. You know, the, it looks like right. a, a compounder because the business has been doing better and better every year, mm-hmm. earning higher returns on invested capital, throwing off cash. And that's when they're most dangerous because that's, they, look, they can look cheap and they can look good and that's sort of that's that's what that's how you get burned with a magic formula type stock, when you know really you want them when they're looking really ugly at the bottom of the of the cycle, and they might even look a little bit more expensive. Um, I would have said that two years ago, but I think it's I do think that businesses can sort of transition, and the two examples that I give are, are, are businesses that Buffett has invested in. One of them is the railway business, railroad business, um, which which I think was a pretty bad business for a really long period of time because it's very capital intensive um, regulated not a great business but it seems that um, you know it's now it's going to be very hard to put down more railways in the states and so they 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 may have a moat and um, Berkshire Hathaway has invested you know in in a railway and the other one I would say is uh, airliners which have traditionally been very cyclical ugly businesses because they're you know, that They burn a lot of jet fuel, which is a really um, cyclical commodity. And then the, they're also tied to the business cycle when business is going well. Lots of people fly when business is going badly. People don't want to fly as much. So it's a really tough business to run where they're basically just competing on price all the time. But I think Buffett recently weighed it in in the last few years and he bought a basket of, of airlines. So I think that maybe airlines have um, – become less cyclical and now they're a little bit more stable just because it's going to be so hard for new airlines to launch because they can't get the slots to land or, or whatever the reason is so i do think that um cyclicals can transition and that's that's only something that i've recently learned i haven't really thought about it a great deal but it's a great question
0: yeah, yeah it's something i don't know it's something that i guess think about especially when you look at you know new new trends or new business models that are coming out i mean like you know, you look at like the, uh, the shared, the shared economy. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Some of the new stuff that's, ha- I mean, look at where we are in Santa Monica. I mean, look at companies like bird or lime. And, yeah, I mean, it's incredible.
1: Yeah. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> Very interesting.
0: <laughs> I was, I was a little nervous on July 4th, you know, walking around there, there was a, I think a few more helmets would have been good, but anyways, <laughs> um, to let's, I want to now dive into the book and I want to let my audience know I did my best to group the questions so that I'm not going chapter by chapter, but uh, uh, here we go. So I, I want to start off with the first chapter, you know, as the the title states, you know, it's how it's the acquires multiple, how the billionaire contrarians of deep value beat the market. In this first chapter, you asked the question, you know, how do billionaires contrarians zig, you know, how do they, and, and what does that mean?
1: When I first started investing, I found it, you know, that, it's hard to kind of uh, understand what it is that you're really looking for as an investor. You, you often, as an as a when you're starting out, you want to you find the business that you want to buy, and then you might do a DCF type valuation on it, and you just fiddle around with the growth and discount rates, which are very very sensitive in that Gordon growth model of DCF, the basis for the DCF, and you find that you can basically get any valuation that you want to justify buying just about any business that you want to buy. And I, it took me a little while and basically it was being a net net investor that taught me what you really want to do is find something that is very undervalued because that's a company that has a great deal of optionality in it that, you know, once that, whatever the thing that is afflicting the business, whatever's wrong with the business, once that goes away, they're the sort of companies that are sort of explosive. They take off really quickly. Um, And so I was trying to find a way to describe what it is you're trying to do. And one way of describing it is is to say that you're trying to zig when the market zags. You're trying to go against what the market is doing. That's the only way that you're going to be able to beat the market if that's that's your objective. So when I I thought about that and I went through, I just thought back to all of the different uh, famous investors who I had heard interviewed. And it, it occurred to me that that was something that they had spoken about over and over. It's one thing it's a common refrain when you look at the things. So I just went through the book and I listed out a few of these different guys who I had heard talking. One of them is Buffett. Buffett famously says, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And then um, Carl Icahn, because I think he's probably, if Buffett is the franchise value investor, Icahn is the, the king of deep value investing. And he's he's been described as the contrarian to end all contrarians, and they always say he buys you know at the worst possible moment, um, when there's no reason to see the sunny side, and no one agrees with him. So that's he's he's zigging when the crowd zags. Then even guys like Paul Tudor Jones, not a value investor, um, I don't he's a trader, I guess you'd describe him. But he he says things like, "I learned that even though markets look their very best when they're setting new highs, that's often the best time to sell. To be a good investor, you have to be a contrarian." Um, Peter Thiel. So this is a totally different way. Again, he's a va- he's a venture capitalist, angel investor. He looks for these ideas that it is a good idea, but it seems like a bad idea. And so he's he's also trying to zig when the crowd zags. Um, Michael Steinhardt does the same thing. He he looks for he describes it as a variant perception. Um, Ray Dalio. He says um, you've got to have a view that's different from the consensus. Howard Marks. Um, to, 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 to achieve superior investment results, you have to hold a non-consensus view. So I think it's a theme that you see over and over and over again in famous investors, that what they're trying to do is to be contrarian, to, to, to move in a way that's different from the market. But I give the, the final spot to Seth Klarman because Seth has a great um, rejoinder to all of that. He said it's not enough to be a contrarian. You have to be a contrarian with a calculator. And that's the, that's the important part. And that's the part that the deep value investor, you have to go in and do the calculation, do the hard work. It's just not enough that the crowd doesn't want it. We have to work out if we actually do want it and sort of ignore what the crowd's doing. So that's what I mean when I say zig when the market sags.
0: That was actually my, I was going to follow up and, and ask that question because, you know, at sometimes, especially, you know, with, you know, if you're on Twitter and you're seeing some of these, you know, icons, I-C-O-N-S. Yeah, I C O N S. Yeah, you know, uh, posting tweets, and you know, sometimes you think it's like a. Li- in the book, you posted a few tweets, you know, and sometimes you think it's a little game going on. You're just like, all right, why are they buying it right now? Like, is this part of their classic pattern, or you know, so it's it's kind of more. I, I like that last one because it's you know, it's, it's putting some more ownership on you. It's like, okay, you can follow. These guys have track records. You're able to follow and see what they're doing, but you really need to do the calculations for yourself to see what they're saying is where you should be putting your money. You know, even they could be wrong. You don't know.
1: And absolutely. If anytime you buy a stock, it's, I don't think it's much of a comfort to see that there's another famous investor in there because I've bought lots of stocks and looked at, you know, well, there's, there's uh, maybe not Buffett, but there's what you know. There's a there's a famous investor there for the ride with me, and the ride that we take is right into the toilet. You know. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So I mean, at the end of the day, it only does take one, but you know, there could be nine stinkers in there that. Uh...
1: <laughs> well, you can. That's. I mean, uh, the hit rates because I, I'm 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 not a quant, but I I look at a lot of data, and I'm I'm interested in. You know how a portfolio can outperform you know a, a strike rate of like 51 percent in a portfolio is a pretty good strike rate and you can make lots of money getting you know 51 out of 100 mm-hmm. stocks right so that means you're getting 49 wrong and that means it's basically a coin flip if you're following another investor who's got a similar strike rate mm-hmm. it's a coin flip whether the one that they're investing is going to work or not you're just hoping that when they work they make more money than um, when they don't
0: yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's that's also assuming that you weighted it, you know, equally across the board, you know, you also right. then have that other variables, then you're hoping that you put more of their money into the 51% that do end up working out, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, so moving, moving on here to the, to, uh, you know, in, in chapters two through five, you, you actually kind of document Warren Buffett's rise and, and how he built his career. And then in chapter six, you formulate what made him so successful? And you actually hit on these these terms a little bit earlier, but figured it'd be good to kind of you know bring it all together. So, you know, if if you could, you know, can you explain how uh, a quote a wonderful company plus and I quote a fair price equals and I quote the magic formula?
1: So this is Joel Greenblatt's magic formula from the little book that beats the market. He. He approached the, how does Buffett invest? And Buffett's pretty open about what he's doing. He says he's looking for a very high return, sustainable high return on invested capital. And he's looking for a a cheap price, which um, Greenblatt says is, is EBIT on enterprise value. But Buffett often talks about using EBIT operating income as his sort of metric for determining how a business is going. And the reason that you use that metric is, it's earnings before interest and taxes. So it, it takes out the impact of the way that the company is financed because debt is tax deductible. So that means that you can compare companies on, a, on an apples to apples basis. So uh, Greenblatt went through quantitatively and he ranked every company on. Uh, so Buffett says he prefers a wonderful company at a fair price to a fair company at a wonderful price. That's the start of the process. Greenblatt breaks that down into wonderful company, high return on invested capital using a one year trailing 12 month measure. And he does the same thing for a fair price, looking for a bargain price, EBIT on enterprise value trailing 12 month measure there as well, ranking on both metrics and then summing the two ranks and then buying the ones that have the lowest ranks. So you can be buying these expensive stocks, but they're very, very good stocks. And you can buy these cheap stocks that aren't very good stocks at all. And so they can both be in the portfolio and together that's the magic formula. When he tested that, he found that that beat the market over the 12-year period that he tested, which was, I forget exactly, but I think it was sort of 1994 to 2006, something like a period like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I tested it with Wes Gray in quantitative value. We threw everything at it that we could think of, you know, is this the real thing? We, we market capitalization weighted, which means that you put more money into the bigger companies to sort of um, make it comparable to the S&P 500, which does the same thing. And then we only looked in a pretty big universe, which in 2012 was companies with a minimum market capitalization of $1.4 billion plus market capitalization weighting into them. So that's pretty heavy going. If a business, if a, if, a, uh, if a strategy can beat the market doing that, it's doing fairly well. And the magic formula does, in fact, beat the market doing that. But we devolved the um, magic formula back down into its component pieces, the wonderful company, high return and invested capital, EBIT enterprise value, fair price, mm-hmm. and then looked at what each contributed to the performance. And we found that the EBIT enterprise value, what I call the acquirer's multiple, contributes um, much more, like 120% of the return of the magic formula. And the fair price actually slightly underperforms the market so that the wonderful company portion, the high return and invested capital, slightly underperforms the market. You, oh, sorry. No, you're fine. You uh, go. Okay.
0: All right. <laughs> well, because I was gonna say you actually you, you teed me up for my for the next question I had for you, which is, you know, what is then the acquirers multiple and and why is this an important metric that investors should look at and, and why is it the secret to beating
1: the market? Well, the the wrinkle to I, I take my head off to Greenblatt for the way that he conducted his back research because that's exactly the way that you should approach a problem you should come up with the idea then test the idea rather than just sort of beating the data until it gives you the answer and um his magic formula does in fact beat the market the the wrinkle to it though is that the acquirers multiple which is just one half of it just the value metric does even better on a raw basis it's so it just if you test it it beats it and then it does it on a risk-adjusted basis too so Looking at the volatility of the returns relative, so the volatility and the returns, it, it, it does better, which doesn't make any sense except for the fact that most businesses are mean reverting, and what I mean by that is, when they're doing very well, they attract competition, and that competition pushes the profits down. Like that's that's you see that over and over again. It's it's mm-hmm. very common. It's actually very unusual for a company to be able to resist that mean reversion in their business and to sustain it. It's only about four percent of companies can do that. And Michael Mabison, I think, has done the best research on what uh, characteristics of that four percent make them identifiable. And he looks at this interesting sort of research where he he will look back ten years and rank every single company on its return on invested capital. And then he will put them into five buckets and the highest return on invested capital and track them over the next 10 years. And he does this on a rolling basis. And he consistently finds that the very highest return on invested capital companies tend to mean revert down. The the very worst tend to get a little bit better as they go along. And the 4% that resist mean reversion um he, looking at it scientifically, doing things like a DuPont analysis to see how they're generating their returns, he's been unable to find the characteristics that predict in each rolling 10 years which will be the ones that resist it. So, Buffett's genius is that he is able to do that. He's just he's able to look outside. Maybe he's just been doing it for so long. He's there's there's um, something about the industry or there's you know we we know that he favors consumer facing product uh, facing businesses and um things that have high margins that can sustain their margins good brands he likes those sort of things and those sort of they do seem to be predictive of of um or they have been in the past And that may be changing a little bit but they tend to have been predictive of companies that could sustain high returns and invested capital mm-hmm. there's an interesting change in the market now where you know it used to be if you had a product and you could get it on a shelf in a supermarket that was a big part of the fight because people went into the supermarket to buy your product you know, you, you had the shelf space and that was sort of a little bit of a competitive advantage. Now, because of the way people shop through social media, using Instagram and other things like that, that's changing where they follow someone who they like and then that person can then push something to them. So I think some of those consumer branded moats are going away. It's just an interesting development to sort of follow. Mm-hmm. For me, it's not so important. I, I don't really, I have no advantage compared to any other person in assessing the quality of a, of a business. The, the point where, I think that I diverge from other investors, that I'm looking at deeply undervalued stocks um, where there's some balance sheet value there. I can see that the business is depressed. I know that if I buy that at a really cheap price, if I buy enough of them at a really cheap price, the ones that do recover, when they recover, they're going to do very well, or they're going to be approached by private equity, or they're going to be approached by an activist. And that, um, that sort of creates this upside optionality in those businesses. And One great way of finding them is the acquirer's multiple, which is the same metric that activists and private equity firms use. So we just approach the problem like a private equity firm or an activist firm. Mm -hmm. So the acquirer's multiple is literally just operating earnings, EBIT operating income on one side, enterprise value, which is um, market capitalization. You look at if it's got any cash and you give it credit for the cash. If it's carrying debt, you penalize it for the debt. And then you look for other things that are like debt, um, preference shares, minority interests, Mm-hmm. Um, underfunded pensions things like that. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking like an acquirer. What would it cost to buy the, this company at, uh To buy this company wholly and if you if you if you do that you'll find that some businesses are Much much cheaper or some companies are much much cheaper than they appear because they've they've got a lot of cash mm-hmm. Or some other businesses are much more expensive than they appear because they're carrying an enormous amount of debt And you've got this thin sliver of equity there so that the acquirer's multiple sort of does all of that in one metric it's a pretty good single slice of a market and if you buy stocks as a portfolio it tends to do pretty well it has historically in back tests beaten the market pretty yeah. handily
0: mm-hmm. so then you know this is you know this being a microcap podcast and microcap investing podcast you know how would you say that someone who focuses specifically on on investing in microcap stocks how can they take advantage of using uh, this acquirers multiple to help them uh, with with their uh, micro cap stock selection.
1: Well, on my on my website acquirersmultiple.com, I have um, I have a free screener which just looks at the largest thousand companies in the states. But then I have two paid screeners. One of them is all investable, which is the largest half of the market, and the minimum market capitalization there is roughly 200 million, 250 million. And then there's a small and micro cap screener, which is Below 250 million, or 200 million, depending roughly on where the market is, mm-hmm. um, that has been the best-performed of all the screeners, uh, just by virtue of the fact that it's um, you know you're finding companies that are undiscovered, that are very very cheap. If you're an experienced, uh, it's the, you need to be an experienced investor to be a small and microcap investor, in my opinion, just because you need to be used to you know you're used to wide bid ask spreads. Um, you're used to a, a lot more volatility in the positions. They do go up and down a lot. If, if a big investor moves into one of these positions, it'll move them up a lot. And the other thing, you know, the, it goes the other way as well. They go down a lot uh, if, they, if those big investors move out. And they're also, you know, they don't have the resources of the very biggest firms. They're sort of, um, you know, there's not as much cash there. If we go through a really tough period, small and micro cap stocks do tend to die out a little bit more than, the bigger companies, but as a portfolio, and over the very long term, small and micro cap, um, deeply undervalued small and micro cap stocks do very, very well, and they have generated the best performance of all of the, the screens that I have.
0: Mm-hmm. And, okay, so then in, in chapter eight, you know, you discuss the the mechanics of deep value, and uh, I, I really like the question that you pose here, and, and I thought we could talk about it a bit more. You actually kind of hit on it a little bit, but, the the question you ask, and I ask it to you again, and I quote, is you know why do fair companies at wonderful prices beat wonderful beat wonderful companies at uh, fair prices?
1: It's mean reversion. It's yeah. it's this uh, if you if you you know if you if you think about it as a as a problem, if you have two businesses and you don't know what those businesses are going to do over the next one, two, three, five years the conservative thing to do is to pay as little as you possibly can for those businesses. Uh, Because that way, if, if the business works, then you're going to do very well. You're going to have an enormous upside. If the business doesn't work, then your downside is pretty truncated. Um, You're hoping that there's some balance sheet value. That's sort of the, that's your, that's the minimum that you're, that you're going to get back. So I think that's, that's the, that's really the crux of it. It's, it's mean reversion, uh, if, you, if you don't know which of the businesses are going to work, you're better off paying as little as you possibly can. And I think that that's, the, that's sort of revealed when you look at the returns to the magic formula. If you, Those companies that are at the very peak of their business cycle look, look like they're going very well or attracting competitors and they tend to have falling return on invested capital over the, the next two, three, five years. And if you just sort of randomize that error, if you don't know what's going to happen and you buy the ones that are very cheap, then some are going to be not very good businesses and they're going to keep on falling, but others of them are going to come to life. And the, the ones that the ones that come to life and do well will do better than the ones that have done badly. That, that's sort of that, that thing that every investor says that they're looking for, the asymmetric returns where the upside is much bigger than the downside. And it really does, that, that seems to be the way that the they, they, they generate their performance. So that's why I prefer fair companies at wonderful prices, just because I don't have Buffett's genius for business analysis. You know, after I had done all of this research and I went back, I read Buffett's letters, you know, regularly every, every few years, probably less regularly now, but I have read them. You know, maybe a dozen times, something like that from start to finish. And as I have got older and I've been doing this for longer, I go back. What I realise that he's talking about, he spends so much time talking about how to find moats because he's clearly how to find sustainable high return on invest capital, how to find moats because he's clearly, you know, that is the most difficult thing to do. So that's where he's dedicating all of his time. That's where all of his effort is. It's not in finding the undervaluation because the undervaluation really does sort of hit you on the head. The hard part is that part. And I can't do it. Buffett clearly can.
0: Yeah, I mean, I f- I've been wanting to do an episode on motology. You know, I-, I hope to do one soon, but because I mean, it's it's really more of an art than science. So it's. Seems- I think
1: it's a great idea, and I think it's very very hard to do. Yeah. And I think I do agree with you. It's it's more art than science. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Or maybe, you know, maybe me and you will just work on it one day and, you know, hopefully. Uh, I'm you- down. <laughs> so, so then you go on in, uh, in, in chapters nine and 10, uh, you discuss the strategies of billionaires starting at around 1989. You know, how have these investing titans utilized technology and social media to gain an edge in the market?
1: Well, I think it's kind of interesting. It's, um, it's a new phenomenon, even in a time that that I've sort of been investing. I remember when Dan Loeb, who's a pretty well-known activist, deep value investor uh, through and through uh, and has sort of maintained very good performance over an extended period where a lot of value investors have really struggled. You know, the best, Buffett struggled, Ackman struggled, Ironhorn struggled, Dan Loeb hasn't struggled. Uh, He's done very well through this entire period. But, you know, Dan Loeb started out, uh, I I forget his exact age, but I talked about in the book, I think he was about 30 Two, something like that um, he had this uh, fund and he had a big chunk of um, Agri brands and the uh, the guy who'd been running agri uh Bill Steitz who's a legend as an investor he'd sort of returned a hundred times he's a legendary sort of operator investor who um, bought and sold companies in this uh, in this shell and done very well over a long period of time and he was trying to merge these two he had one one company that had he was sort of chairman and CEO of one and CEO of the other or something like that chairman and chairman CEO of one and chairman of the other and one had a pretty good business and the other one had a whole lot of cash and he was trying to push them together so that he could then go back to doing what he does a sort of wheel of dealing Loeb um sees him trying to do this and Loeb isn't the one that has a whole lot of cash and not a great business and he says he's trying to he sees that the um the cash business is he's trying to sell it for about three times um enterprise multiple which is a close uh sibling to the acquirer's multiple it's ebitda rather than just ebit so he's already he's been on these message boards where he famously um is mr pink and he talks about um businesses and he he flames people on these message boards you know which is what you know just trolling and 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 being nasty (laughs) to everybody which is what we all used to do back in the late 1990s early 2000s um before sort of twitter took off um and he, he writes this letter where he basically realizes that he's got nothing. You know, Stewart's is a legend and he's holding and Loeb's holding is sort of two or three, four percent, something like that. So not enough to kind of stop the transaction from going through. The only thing you can do is send a letter. So he sends this really nasty letter, this poison pen letter, and he attaches it to a, a 13D filing, which is the filing you have to make when you go over five percent. So he must have just gone over five percent in order to send the letter, I think he said. So when he sends the letter, you know, somehow it works. Sturridge reads the letter; it gets picked up in the press because it's so kind of nasty. Um, And then the transaction, uh, they find another buyer who comes in and pays more, and and Loeb does really well out of it. And all of a sudden, he realises that you can you can buy these little holdings in these companies that don't really give you any. You know, you've you've got no um, power as a shareholder. You, You don't. You're not on the. You can't get on the board to to affect anything. But just through sort of um, embarrassing people or calling out the issue, you can create a catalyst in the stock. And so it does two things. Those letters sort of say they, they embarrass the person to get them to do what you want, but it also tells other investors, hey, this thing's really undervalued. And this little cottage industry of these guys who are small activists sort of pop up and they start sending these um, 13D letters where they call out, you know, the very personal um, – you know very nasty kind of personal letters, and it did work for a while, and it was like a, through the early 2000s there was this sport of kind of following these guys and reading these letters, and the, the letters were all emailed around to everybody. but it was before Twitter
0: <laughs> i mean i I'm sorry, I, I'm laughing just because like you know the the and I mentioned this earlier in the interview, it's like the games that you can play, you know it, right. it, it really just changes. Pretty much how you can even go about approaching investing because, you know, with I mean, you see it now. There's uh, even small investors being able to talk about stocks, and you know, you get to see who's who's in it, who's not, what they're saying, and then you have to ask the question: Well, why are they saying this? You
1: know. Well, that's the the incredible uh, power that social media has given to people. It's sort of democratized that. Um, Activism or rating to the point where now you don't really even need a great deal of capital You don't even need that small amount of capital to get a five percent position Which is still a pretty big chunk of money in most instances. Mm -hmm. You can just you know You can be a guy on Twitter or a guy with a blog. You can find something undervalued and you can write about it and draw attention to it so I think you know even even icon has a Twitter account now where and he's you know he's pretty good at twitter he's 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 good at sort of uh, pithy one-liners and drawing attention to these undervalued stocks and i i've i picked up a few of them in in greenback because he uh, sorry in the acquirers multiple the book where he I, I just pulled his tweets out when he was um when he was attacking apple yeah because he saw like App, apple was a deep value stock this is the thing that people sort of forget very quickly, but, and it happens pretty regularly too. In 2013, it was a deep value stock. It was one of the cheapest 10 in the large cap universe. It was one of the cheapest 10% of stocks around. Um, it was just because it had so much cash on its balance sheet and that cash had just sort of built up and the, the, the market really wasn't giving it any credit for that cash because they didn't know what it was going to do with it. If you back that cash out, it was, it was trading on five or six times, mm-hmm. uh, acquires multiple. Same thing happened, in, and so uh, Icon went in and said, "Just buy back a whole lot of stock." Einhorn, David Einhorn, had the idea to turn to create this uh, funky security called an I pref, which is a preference share that would have done some other stuff. It was a little bit too complicated, and uh, ultimately Icon's idea, which was just simpler, uh, won out. And Apple went on to conduct this enormous buyback, but it was throwing off so much cash that. Um, by 2016, even though they'd conduct the biggest buyback ever, it still had this enormous amount of cash in its business. And it seems to be, you know, it, it's not a cyclical stock, but it does have this iPhone cycle where the iPhone comes out every two years or so. And in that iPhone cycle, uh, in the middle of that iPhone cycle, when you don't know, you know, can they do it again? Will people line up to buy the next iteration of the iPhone? They get, the business seems to get, the company seems to get a little bit cheaper. And it happened again in 2016. And I tweeted in 2013 and said, you know, Apple's really cheap, and I did it again in 2016. Just said Apple's really, really cheap, and it and it was just before um, Buffett emerged as a, an investor in Apple the second time around. Right.
0: And, and by the way, for just for full disclosure, are you still are you currently a shareholder in Apple? Or, or
1: in I am Apple? not. Okay. Uh, no, I, roll, I I tend to be. I hold for sort of a little bit over 12 months to 18 months. So 2016, it rolled out. I'm not sure exactly, but it would have been more than a, about a year ago, I think I rolled out of it. Mm-hmm.
0: So then, you know, in the, in the last two chapters, you you kind of elucidate on the the art of deep value investing. What are your tips to mastering this art?
1: The thing that you have to understand about deep value investing is you're not buying great businesses. And that's the hardest thing to get over. I often say to people, I'm, you know, I'm buying this and they say, well, that's, that's a that's a terrible business. And I say, yes, I know. Like, that's why it's cheap. That's why you get this chance to buy this thing really, really cheap or it's got some sort of issue. So the the hardest thing to master about deep value investing is understanding that you're not buying. Um, you know, it's, not, it's probably not gonna have a great product. It doesn't have great margins. It doesn't have a great return on invested capital. It doesn't look like a great business. You know, it could be a, an oil refiner or something like that. Um, but at that point in time, for whatever reason, they're just all of the bad news has led to the stock being very deeply depressed. And that's why you're getting this opportunity to buy something that is worth more than what you're paying for it because it looks to the rest of the market like it's going to keep on losing money or it's going to keep on having this, a bad run or the crisis is never going to go away. So um, that's, that's really the thing. You've got to get over the fact that you're buying something bad. You've got to get over something that really other value investors, most value investors who I have met tend to be guys who follow Buffett. There aren't a huge number of deep value guys around. So when I tell other value investors what I'm doing, they think I'm an idiot. You know, and I'm sort of, I can't really point to anything in the financial statements that says that this thing's going to turn it around. It's just I have to rely on the statistical, the probabilistic approach to this stuff where I believe that mean reversion is going to come into these stocks and they are going to turn around even though there's really no evidence for it in the most recent financial statements. So... That's the sort of, that's the hardest thing you have to get over. It's just the mental block of buying something that doesn't look good and you're not going to look smart while you're buying it. You sort of hope that you look smart down the track.
0: So you, you, you talk about, you know, how it's, it's having the discipline, you know, for you at least you have you've developed this discipline for not buying great businesses. You know, what's, what's the behavioral aspect, you know, what, what was it that helped you learn how to stop, you know, feeding into maybe some of the things that you see online for, you know, what you yourself have found to be, you know, possibly an interesting investment.
1: one of the one of the interesting aspects of um, the social science research that has gone into there's this idea developed by Paul Meal, who was a researcher in the 1960s, and he said um, there's this sort of golden rule of predictive modeling and that and and, and investing is a sort of predictive process where you've got uh, incomplete information and you have to make a prediction about what's going to happen in the future he says that basically these uh, algorithms, simple algorithms, so algorithm makes it sound like it's something on a computer, but it doesn't necessarily have to be there. It could just be like a six question questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And you just go through the questionnaire. You know, is it undervalued? Is it, you know, is it throwing off cash flow that matches the accounting earnings? Um, Is it buying back stock? And these are things that I've tested. And I, I know that each individually works, and, and as a as a group, I've back tested them to make sure that they work. And so once the, those questions are, are answered, and you know the the computer does all of it for me these days, but um, once those questions are answered, then there's nothing that I can do beyond that. I mean, I I'm guilty I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. I like to go around and find discretionary value guys who back up my ideas about buying these stocks, and I'll find them and tweet them out, and 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 I'll put them into the I am right file, but every investor does this it's just that i'm a little bit more i'm trying to be a little bit more honest about the process that i really think you only need a little bit of information and you have to be comfortable with the fact that you only have a little bit of information because you get to this point where you're not you're no longer making a yes or no decision about whether you buy the stock all you're doing is looking for additional information to sort of support the decision that you've already made it's a pretty common behavioral error cognitive error so I, i'm just I try to be um, I try to externalize the decision making process and i I know that there are there are go no go there are about six go no go decisions that have to be made and if uh, if it fails on those things and it just doesn't ever make it into the portfolio if it passes those things then i sort of st- I, I now stop worrying about it even though i'll continue on to look for other stuff that you know makes me think that i'm right about this position and i you know oh, i've got you know some big investors invested in it um they've got some interesting new business all of these other things that i I, i'm still guilty of doing it but i now know that what i'm doing at that stage is just finding stuff that's largely irrelevant to my process it's a very common behavioral error at some stage you 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 move beyond making a decision and you just you're 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 just finding stuff to support the decision that you've already made so you know and i i've I've performed that function as an as M&A attorney. Like when you start out as an M&A attorney, what you're doing is due diligence. And what due diligence is, it's performed by the very uh, most junior lawyers. And it's your life for sort of the first two years or three years of being a, an M&A lawyer. You go into a data room. There's a, there's like hundreds of folders of documents. And you go through the documents to sort of try to find it. You have to describe for your client you know, what they're buying, what the issues are going to be. And you might then produce like a 10-folder um, due diligence report. And on the front of the due diligence report is this little, um, a, a smaller folder that then has a summary on top of that that tells these are the main issues. I've gone through, I've probably done, I don't know, 60, 70 of these uh, over the course of the two or three years that I was a junior lawyer. And I didn't ever find, never, ever did the deal not go through by something that we found in those deal in in that in that due diligence, and I think that what you know, a lot of it is just ask covering. They're just trying to make sure that you know, if if anything happens, I can here's the, look. We did the diligence. We we did find anything at the time, but that's because the management's already made the decision to go through with the transaction. They're just they're at that stage. They're looking for information to you know to go in the I am right file rather than the go no go file. So. Right. Um, it's something that I've seen up close to first. It's a real, it's a real phenomenon. It's I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, but it's something that you have to be careful of. You know, at, at that additional piece of information, is that going to change your view one way or the other? It's probably not. Then why are you wasting your time finding it?
0: Right. Right. So uh, getting back to the book, I have one more question or, well, two more questions and, and, but this is on the last chapter and, and in there you say, uh, you know, the eight rules of deep value, you know, what, what are they?
1: Um there I just I I wanted to simplify the um the book down even further into this sort of um little little checklist basically. Because I'm a believer in checklists. You forget to do things and you, you need some prompt to go and do something. So the first one is just sort of the main thesis of the book, which is zig when the market sags. So you wanna be um you know, it's okay to buy something that other value investors don't want, the market doesn't want. That's sort of where you want to be because that's where the, the optionality is. And then what you're trying to do is buy undervalued companies. So it's not enough that it's not enough to be a contrarian. You actually have to go then and do the work to make sure that it's undervalued. And then I, I say this is the third one. You have to seek a margin of safety. And that's a sort of threefold test that says, um, is the company at a big discount to its value? That's, that's the first thing. Yes, it is. You want to make sure that the cash, sorry, the balance sheet is liquid, so it's got cash on its balance sheet, doesn't have a lot of debt, check for off balance sheet, Um, things that are like debt, like operating leases, underfunded pensions, things that that catch you out, financial distress, you know, is it liquid enough? Can it in fact survive? Those things are important. I say something like, um, you don't win if your company's got too much cash, but you know, not having enough cash has killed lots of Businesses that would otherwise be pretty good businesses. So that's something you need to be careful of. And then you need to make sure that it's a real business. Um, this is one that I always say, you know, if it's, a, if it's a biotech and it's still trying to prove that the drug works or if it's a junior miner and it's trying to prove that there's a deposit there, that's not a real business. That, that They might end up working some, and there are lots of specific instances where, you know, buying at a discount to cash, it might work out. But I prefer businesses that are generating some cash flow at least the business is actually working. Number four is to think about the, um, think about a share not as a ticker symbol, but as an ownership interest in the business. And this is a Buffett Graham idea, um, because shareholders have power to change bad policies of businesses. And if you have enough shareholders, they can, um, you know, companies paying management too much or they're not buying back stock or whatever they're doing, you can fix those things as a shareholder. Number five is to be wary of high earnings growth and profits. So this is one thing that this is I, this is a personal one for me. This is one I've been trapped in lots of different times. If you find those, it looks really cheap. It looks like it's very high growth. Um, statistically, that will slightly underperform low growth undervaluation. It doesn't make any sense at all, but it's the case. High growth and undervalued underperforms low growth and undervaluation. And, I think the reason is that the um, that high growth, high profits attract competition and it slows the it it slows the growth, reduces the profits. Number six is um, simple concrete rules. Use the simple concrete rules to avoid making errors. So write out your list of the things that actually do matter and then go through your list when you're investing in these companies. When I say simple, you know, it has to be something that you can actually it's not you know, uh, it's, it's it's not overly complex. It doesn't have to be a 100-question a checklist. Five or six questions is often enough, and they have to be concrete. So that means, you know, you can – is there more cash than debt on the balance sheet? If it's yes, then that passes. If it's no, then it doesn't pass. That's that. That's an example. It's not necessarily a rule that I follow, but that's an example of a concrete rule. So concrete rules are testable is the idea. Um, I believe in concentration. I think if you have – Um, if you have some method that can outperform the market you have to be prepared to sort of back that Um, and that means that you buy you know you don't want to you don't want a 200 stock portfolio you probably don't want a 100 stock portfolio you probably don't want a 50 stock portfolio i think the magic number is somewhere between 20 and 30 i know that there are investors who who prefer 10, and that might be appropriate in special situation portfolios or in companies that are very, very safe. You know, 30 if you're more of a deep value guy like me buying sort of ostensibly riskier companies. Um, and the final one is to think in terms of after-tax gains. So that's that's something that... Um, It only becomes apparent to you as you sort of as you go into this business a lot But if you're paying short-term capital gains, that's a massive drag on your returns You have to think in terms of uh, long-term capital gains, which means You know holding for more than a year or finding some method to sort of Limit the tax that you pay as you go along because over time it uh, it, it's a big chunk of your alpha And and if you uh, just concentrate on that, there's a lot of what they call tax alpha just in reducing your return, Just in reducing your your tax payments. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the eight.
0: Nice. So then what what is the main message that you would like people who read your book to walk away
1: with? The main message is well it's it's sort of it's it's zig when the market zag. So go and buy these go and buy these companies when the market's um, in hate with them and sell them to the market when the market's in love with them. But then make sure that you're doing the work to um, to make sure that's something that you want. And one way of doing that is to use the acquirer's multiple, which is just a a pretty simple value metric for um, finding undervalued stocks.
0: So, in the first in the first interview, you know, you uh, uh, you gave an experience that uh, really helped shape your your investing career. You know, there must have been a second one. You know, so uh, for our audience, it's a fun question. You know, what what other experience did you have that? Uh, that uh, really shaped the the deep value investor you are today.
1: There have been many. I, I don't remember exactly what I told you last time, but for me, you know, I I I um, I'm just a conservative sort of uh, valuation I, valuation as a as an approach to investing in stocks makes more sense to me than say other other ways of investing, which are you know, you could be a momentum type guy, you can be a very high growth. There, I, I know lots of successful high growth investors. I just don't know how to do it personally myself. And that uh, a lot of investment is just, I think that over time I've just learned that investing is a very personal thing for each individual and you have to find uh, an investment style that suits your personality. And I often say that the way to do it, you probably want to invest sort of inverse to your own personality. So I'm a pretty optimistic, um, you know, uh, guy. And so I, The stocks that I look at are always these really ugly stocks and I always think, you know, this thing's going to make it, it's going to pull through the other side, it's going to make a lot of money um, when the time is right. And so I'm going to buy it thinking that the future is going to be good. I think if you're a high growth momentum guy, you want to be pretty skeptical. You want to think that there's nothing that's ever going to be good enough because that's probably true. They're probably a little bit harder to pick. So it's it's just that um, I've seen lots of high growth, you know, apparently attractive VC type investments get absolutely torched. And so I'd just rather be at that uh, cheaper, uh, undervalued start, uh, side of the, of the market where, you know, if, they, if I'm wrong and I think I'm probably going to be wrong, it's not going to be such a bad thing. If I'm right in the unlikely chance that, that does in fact occur, then it's going to work out and do pretty well. Nice.
0: So, so Tobias, where can my audience go and find more information about you and maybe where they can go and buy your book?
1: The website uh, Acquires Multiple has links to all of the books and has the free screener. Just requires that you sign up for it. Um, the book The Acquires Multiple is available through Amazon and uh, it has links to all of my other books on there. Um, so that's the that's that's a pretty good place to start. I think the Kindle version of the book is nine ninety nine, so that's um it's pretty good value for a condensation of all of the other eighty five dollar books. <laughs>
0: Sounds good. And um, and uh, what what website should I point everybody to go to to find out more about you and, you know, your your ventures that you have going on?
1: Acquire multiple is probably uh, the best place to go for all of that. That's the um, it's got a little bio and it's got the books and that's 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 where we're sort of posting new information every day. New new posts, new um, there's something going on every day. Nice.
0: Well, Tobias, thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast, and uh, I I really do appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Robert. My absolute pleasure. Great questions. I love being on. Uh, Thank you.
0: Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Tobias, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast please send an email to info at snnwire.com. i'd love to hear from all of you this podcast has been brought to you by snn incorporated publishers of stocknewsnow.com the official microcap news source and the microcap review magazine i'm your host robert kraft and thank you again for joining me on the planet microcap podcast have a great week everyone